On November 29, 2016, West Coast Children's Clinic hosted a panel on child sex trafficking. We were interested in exploring the ways gender, race, and power impact the child sex trade. This is the fifth of five podcasts from a recording of that evening's panel. Thank you so much for listening. This is going to be our last question before Q&A. We have to dismantle racism and misogyny in order to stop child sex trafficking. And to do so in the Trump era is daunting, to say the least. So what are the most important concrete steps we need to take as a race and gender conscious anti-trafficking movement? And I'm going to start, I'm just going to start with you, Min. Okay. So one is to fund employment training programs like Annie Cannon's in the room because what is affected by girls um, who are trafficked is their access to education and jobs because if they have records, it's harder to get jobs and um, school was not the best place for them often and so they need to have viable employment opportunities to fund their lives. Work on maternity leave policies, uh, lots of work around parenting practices and um, the fact that you have to get a license to drive but not to have kids, um, but really just to support parents. Child Children's Hospital Oakland does this infant parent program and really supports parents who've been abused before learning how to better parent. Um, support organizations like Bay Area Transformative Justice for community responses. So the work of Mia Mingus really is about Look, communities have been addressing this issue. How do we support communities and organize community responses in addition to working within systems, right? So how are you addressing incest in your communities? If there's a sexual abuse to prison pipeline, what, what about that sexual abuse within the families? Let's talk about incest. Let's talk about sexual abuse within the families and address that. Fund survivor-led organizations um, and the U.S. Advisory Council, which I'm on, we advise the President's Task Force on blah, 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 and human trafficking. And um, it's an unfunded mandate, but we get to sit in rooms with senators who anonymously, I'm told by other survivors, have been exploited by other elected officials, right? And so we have the ear of people in power who are participating in various systems of oppression and wanting to do something about it. So funding um, survivor-led advisory councils and programs like that so that there are more people like me out there, that there's capacity building for folks so people are trained on um, how to make change in their communities, how to be strategic thinkers. Um, bring in the civil rights movement folks. So if we're talking about race and gender, civil rights movement, LGBT rights, women's rights, really end this siloing of issues, especially because there's this competition over some scarce resources and not saying, well, now all of a sudden, homeless youth get the shit under the stick because we're gonna focus on child sex trafficking, really bringing movement leaders across the spectrum. And then lastly, I think something that's really hard, which is to work with people who identify as sex workers, because no matter how people got there, people who might be, let's say, 40, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, who were 10 and exploited, 
now are in this sector and they aren't seen as victims because 30 years ago this issue was not the hot new social justice topic, right? And there are people there who say, well, did you give me a free education and a way to get make more money than to work at McDonald's? This is a way that I'm making money and feeding my family. So how do we really engage that population rather than continue to um, ostracize them? And then one last one, my one comment about empathy for the perpetrators. Perpetrators are also not born sexual predators, right? So some of the first male survivors I ever met talked to me about having the experience of trying to figure out their sexual abuse by going to buy people. They had no space to talk about it because men aren't allowed to talk about sexual abuse. They were trying to talk about their mothers raping them, they were trying to talk about their aunts raping them. So how are we addressing the culture that leads men and other people, women, adults, to perpetrate on children. Thank you, man. Um, so I think first and foremost, we have to end the culture of impunity, right? So if you are purchasing a child for sex, most likely you will be, you will not be arrested, most likely. If you are arrested, it will be most likely for misdemeanor solicitation, okay? We have to end this distinction between raping a child and paying to rape a child. And when we pay to rape a child, there is impunity. That distinction must end. And so individuals who are committing this act must be understood as child predators, as child rapists, as child abusers. And that means they have to be held accountable. Because as long, we know this from a human rights perspective, as long as there is impunity around this form of gender-based violence, the abuse continues. So I deeply believe that this is not a situation of vice or prostitution or solicitation. This is about child abuse and perpetrators must be held accountable, not given a slap on the wrist or not simply disregarded. I think the other piece that is absolutely critical is that we have a lot of knowledge around the abuse and trauma that children suffer when they have been sexually violated. But because trafficked children are framed as and treated as child prostitutes, they're often not afforded that expertise, right? They're not afforded those services and protections. So the idea of having a closed circuit testimony, which is what we offer children who are being sexually abused, to be able to testify against their perpetrator, we rarely do that. It's an exception that we do that here. We rarely do that throughout the country for children who have been trafficked. So those kids are forced to show up in the courtroom and testify against their abuser. That's unacceptable. They deserve the same protections that we accord to other children who have been abused. And in the same way that we talk about how a child who has been abused, 
yeah, you can give her a yoga class or you can give her some mentoring or tutoring, that's good. But we recognize that any abused child deserves, needs, requires trauma-informed care, not a yoga class alone, right? That has to be given to our kids who are trafficked. They have to be seen as children who have been abused. And they have to be given all the trauma-informed services that we recognize any other child of abuse needs in order to find a chance for health and stability. So for me, those are two critical areas that we have to tackle being able to recognize this as a form not of prostitution and vice, but a form of child abuse, which means we hold the perpetrator accountable. We're very comfortable right now holding the traffickers accountable, which is good, but there is not the same comfort in holding the buyers accountable. And I don't know if that has something to do with how buyers are disproportionately white, middle-class educated men, and we're not comfortable with that construct of an individual as being criminal. We don't liken that construct of a person to criminality. And if that is what is underneath impunity for these buyers, we must interrogate that from a racial justice perspective, from a child rights perspective, from a gender violence-based perspective. And I think really being able to do that courageously and also understand what our children need when they have been abused and that they still, at the age of 16 and 17, they're still minors. And from a human rights perspective, they are still afforded the right to be protected in the status of child. And they deserve not some kind of minimal response, but comprehensive services and all the expertise that we have been able to garner for other abused children, that's what they deserve as well. Take tonight's presentation and conversation with you and frame it through the lens of what if this conversation was about your child, your grandchild, your niece, your nephew, your neighbor, your student, your client? I'm just going to pause for a second. We have very well-intentioned professionals, advocates, system players, public servants, judiciary included, who don't take the time to pause and really think about many of these conversations and how we would react, what we would ask of our public servants, what we would ask of our systems, our community providers, and our community if it were our child. When I have youth come into the courtroom, when they are appearing in my department, they walk in the door. I know they're coming in. Before they come in, I look at a picture of my niece that I keep on my bench. And I do that with every child and every family because I think 
if that was my family appearing, how would I feel? How would I want them to feel about what's going on? The tone, the dialogue, the treatment, the eye contact, the respect or lack of dignity. So concrete, I would hope that you all, if you don't know someone who has been exploited, take tonight's conversation and frame it through a child that you do know on that. So that's on an individual level. On a professional level, educate yourself. Find people, find entities like West Coast who can assist you in understanding the very dynamic and complex experiences of the children that we are talking about. Understand that what you do, no matter your walk of life, no matter what you do from eight to five, you would be surprised at the number of youth that may come across your path who have experienced some of the things that we are talking about tonight. And you don't have to be in a child-serving entity. You could be a business leader. You could be a retailer. Think about what you understood about this conversation and what you don't know, and look for more information. When you work with these children, understand how important continuity and stability is. So when we're talking about takeaways, one of the things that I constantly take away and that I work with my partners in my community is the stability and the intentionality of what we are doing. By nature, type A personality, I'm a control freak. My calendar, I only want to sit on my calendar. But I also don't let any other judge sit on my calendar because I want my youth to know that when they walk in the door, I'm their judge. They know their judge knows their case, but they don't have to retell their story. They don't have to wonder about, oh, does he or she know who I am? Do they understand my history? Have they worked with me through some of these failed placements? Have we talked about why I didn't go to school? Continuity for child-serving systems is so important. As others have said tonight, we don't want our families and youth in system, right? This, this is not the answer to this problem. But when you're in system, you have to be intentional. And the bouncing in and out, the lack of consistency does not afford them the well-being that we're talking about when we talk about being trauma-informed and having a trauma-sensitive approach. Lastly, be humble. Have some humility. I know for me, I think I know the law fairly well. I think I know a breadth of laws. I think I understand something about kids and families. I learn something every day from every family that appears before me. And I have to be a big enough person to recognize that and to work through that. Not to pretend that I know everything and I have all the answers. Yes, I will give a decision, but I have to be humble enough to know that in, as I work through this with my families, with my children, I'm only one piece of their pie. And they are going to know most often, whether we think they do or not, what it is they need and how it is they're going to get there. So make some space to actually have their voice involved in your decision-making process. Finally, as community takeaways, 
understand that, again, we have a breadth of the community here. When we talk about cross-systems, support your community. Continue to have and attend and participate in conversations like these. We cannot do it alone. Our kids need to be wrapped by their community, not one piece of the community, not temporarily. So support your community as you continue to have these very critical conversations. So my county has a, uh, in my office has a, uh, is participating in an initiative to increase uh, or decrease the demand for for child sex trafficking, for purchasing children and raping children for money. And our goal is to reduce the demand by 20% over the next two years. And we have strategies that we've put into place. One strategy is we have our own website. And I don't mean the website that you would say, oh, let's go to the DA's office website. It looks like where people go to buy children for sex. And that website, what comes up is not a bunch of pictures, but it's a thing that says, you've reached the district attorney's website and we know your IP address and we're coming after you. So that's the stick part of what we do. And if we could figure out where they really were, then we really would come after them. Um, but you know, so part of that is scare the hell out of people to make it very uncomfortable to do what they're doing. And we have not done that. So a, a, an analogy that I have is that um, several years ago, in the, in the late 90s, beginning of 2000, we, had, we started an initiative that went statewide of prosecuting adult men who were sexually exploiting minors. That's how we first started hearing about this, this phenomenon of somebody is putting that child on the street, or the, the traffickers. But what we did across this, this state was that we prosecuted over five or six or seven years thousands of adult men and some women who were sexually exploiting teenagers, were raping teenagers. And everybody thought that was the right thing to do. Well, maybe they didn't, but, but society believed that was the right thing to do. Jurors believed it was the right thing to do because we educated our communities across the state about that what that exploitation, what that child rape environment was, and and where we we have not been as we haven't been successful doing that, and maybe because people think if there's an exchange of money, or because it's a child of color, or because poverty is somehow involved, or whatever dynamic is going on, we have not convinced our communities across this state and this country that. Those people that were, were doing statutory rape or unlawful sexual intercourse were, were perpetrators, and the people who are buying children and raping them are not, and they are. So part of our effort now is legislatively. We have to change the laws. The 647B that Holly referenced has been on the books since the late 1800s, and it has not been amended since the late 1800s. So it it's needs to change, and we're working on that. But in this last legislative year, we, we introduced a bill. We wrote a bill and found us, we sponsored it. And it would have uh, made a felony crime for an adult to lure a child for purposes of sexual contact, sexual assault, 
or human trafficking. The demand could be charged with a felony, and we couldn't get out of the Senate. So an action item for everybody here is when those types of bills, if you believe and accept everything we've been talking about, when bills like that that hold the purchaser, the other part of this equation, more accountable than just a slap on the wrist, then write to your legislators, contact the people that vote, and say, we're your, party, we're your community, and by the way, we're gonna vote for you or not, but this is so important in protecting children that exercise your voice with your representatives and your senators and your assembly members. If you agree with what we're talking about, then let them know that you do so that we can get these laws changed to hold people accountable. We, our public, every January we do a public awareness campaign. Our first one was taking a, a page out of uh, Malika's book of there's no such thing as a child prostitute. In our first year, we had about 22 million sets of eyes saw our billboards. Anybody driving to San Francisco in the morning that sat in traffic saw our billboards. They were all over. I almost drove off the road because I saw one in Sacramento one day and I couldn't believe it. But the next year we had 44 million sets of eyes looking at our billboards that are all about in-your-face messaging. That's, we got an award for it called in-your-face messaging, a national award. This year our campaign is engaging men because men have been absent in this fight against human trafficking. And men can help, men can stop human trafficking also. So one of our other initiatives is that when men go to that website, it's another, it's a volunteer man that we've recruited uh, and a group of men that get on the phone and say, do you understand that what you're about to do is to buy somebody's daughter? What you're trying to do is, what you would be doing is essentially raping a child. And try to get that humanity to the person on the other side of the line. And what we found through other uh, communities that have done this is that it's like 2% ever the phone, I mean, there's all this great technology where we can figure out where phones are and all that. Less than 2% that have that kind of conversation have gone back to a website. So we know that there's a lot of work to do, but we have to make it more, we have to make it uncomfortable and punish people that are buying our children and raping them for money. Thank you, Nancy. Holly, you're on. So I'm gonna keep it very brief because my sisters in the struggle up here have said so many amazing things. I mean, I think we covered most of it. The one thing that I'll leave us with is the absolute importance and necessity of making sure that survivors' voices and perspectives are centered in all of our work. Because if that's not, if that doesn't take place, then in our desire to be helpful and our desire to be heroes and our desire to rescue, we, become, we objectify and exploit again. And we need to really recognize their absolute brilliance and their absolute ability and necessity to shape their own destiny. Some of the things that we see that show up in some of the survivors' behaviors when they're in the middle of their trauma, those are not um, maladjusted behaviors or whatever type of um, you know, labels we wanna give it. Those are brilliant survival skills that children who are under unimaginable stresses, pressures, and oppression are exhibiting to keep themselves alive. And if we can frame it in that way, then we can recognize their abilities to inform what takes place 
in their, their, their future. And so when we say centering survivor's voice, I don't mean just giving them a voice and giving them a microphone at, at the times that we determine. I mean that they really need to be the most important voice in the room when we're making decisions around what's gonna happen in their lives. And for us to recognize that that is the most important thing in this movement. That, that's what I say is our biggest strategy. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about West Coast Children's Clinic, visit www.westcoastcc.org.